You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And finally, spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Reservoir Dogs, which came out in 1992 and was directed by Quentin Tarantino. It stars Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, Randy Brooks, Quentin Tarantino, Eddie Bunker, Kirk Baltz, and Stephen Wright. The genre would be crime drama. Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. Bam, 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 bam. You're under arrest, sugar. <laughs> Harvey Keitel. Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? I probably rewatch this film every couple of years, and I have since first seeing it in theaters 30 years ago. It's the kind of film which rewards multiple viewings, even though the setup feels deceptively simple. This was, of course, Quentin Tarantino's vaunted directorial debut, which he also wrote the screenplay for. The focus of the story is pretty much on eight different scumbag criminals for hire in the lead-up to and aftermath of a diamond heist gone wrong. A heist which we never actually witness on screen, mind you. And that key omission is one of this film's key strengths. What's the exposure like? Two minutes, tops. But it's a tough two minutes. Daylight, during business hours, dealing with the crowd. What's the cut, Papa? Juicy, Junior. Real juicy. (laughs) The main theme of the movie seems to be about honor among thieves, mainly how some thieves strive for that while others disregard it, often to the detriment of both subgroups. But honestly, at the end of the day, it's really about the experience of watching this film, which has made it so special. Tarantino throws us into this insular world filled with violence and humor, often mixed uncomfortably within the same moments. So let's try and figure out who the bad guy is, all right? Wow. <laughs> that was really exciting. <laughs> I bet you're the big Lee Marvin fan, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, me too. I love that guy. We sort of like many of these characters, even though we're pretty disgusted with many of the things that we see them say or do. And it's honestly difficult to determine who is the most honorable among them. Take Mr. Blonde, for instance, as played by Michael Madsen, back when the actor looked young and fresh. He's likely the most charismatic of the bunch, even with the most deceptively calm demeanor. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? What was that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? He is the textbook definition of someone who talks softly and carries a big stick. 
Only his big stick happens to be a switchblade and a canister of gasoline. Oh sure, he has a code, as he seems fiercely loyal to Joe and Eddie who hired him. But he's a genuine sociopath with regards to most other folks. And because of homicidal idiocy on his part, he not only tortures this cop in a sequence that's actually a bit more grisly than I first recall, but he also makes a spectacle of himself by just strutting outside into a pretty occupied residential area, gun holster showing no less, to get gasoline from his car. Michael Madsen plays this character with plenty of charm and swagger. But Tarantino writes and directs this character in a canny way to remind us that Mr. Blonde is, in fact, an impulsive killer who has no honor nor even much of a clue. Look, it, I'm not going to bullshit you, okay? I don't really give a good fuck what you know or don't know. But I'm going to torture you anyway. Regardless, not to get information. It's amusing, uh, to me, to torture a cop. You can say anything you want, because I've heard it all before. Whereas Mr. White, as played by Harvey Keitel, is a brash hothead who wears his emotions on his sleeves. He almost never backs down from a fight. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? Shit. <laughs> you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. He's loud, reactive, and he almost always reveals too much personal stuff about himself, which makes him less than an effective criminal to work with much of the time. And yet, if you earn his respect, he'll be loyal to you. And beyond that, he might even risk his life for you. And he happens to be a crack shot, too. No joke. Just watch that climax. So when it comes to honor, White's got it. But when it comes to defending Mr. Orange, does that really even help matters in the end? Joe's gonna get you a doctor! The doctor's gonna fix you up! And you're going to be okay. Now say it. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Well, not really if your end goals are to get away with the crime and have most principals walk away alive. The conflict between white and blonde is pretty much what drives this story towards its conclusion. And as grim as that conclusion is, witnessing those fireworks developing between Keitel and Madsen with Tim Roth in the middle playing Mr. Orange, it helps keep it damn entertaining all along the way. And I have barely scratched the surface here. There's Steve Buscemi destroying with his rapid-fire delivery as Mr. Pink. Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Stephen Wright voicing the classic rock DJ we never knew we wanted. A truly bizarre play fight in Joe's office between Mr. Blonde and Nice Guy Eddie, played by Chris Penn. And so much more. There's depth there, and there's some ruminations on honor, but it's all coded with crackling dialogue, great performances, and a grimy, low-budget flair. And that, of course, brings us to the categories. The first category would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Tarantino deserves a lot of credit for piecing together the eclectic soundscape for this film, but he wasn't alone. Mad props are also in order for music supervisor Karen Rockman, who was instrumental in selecting and, of course, acquiring the rights for these songs. Rockman is a music producer who is pretty much responsible for most of the best movie soundtracks of the 1990s. And we are talking some real elite soundtracks here. Reality Bites, Pulp Fiction, Romeo and Juliet, and two former episodes, Desperado and Boogie Nights. 
She was the music supervisor for all of these, if you could believe that. Just an incredible ear for music who collaborated with Tarantino on giving this film such a memorable and eclectic collection of songs heard throughout. Now about those songs, I'm going to have some fun with this category and I'm going to rank the top three needle drops for Reservoir Dogs. Number three. This one occurs late in the movie as we're watching Mr. Orange, played by Tim Roth, and we see him nervously leaving his apartment, gathering his stuff up as Mr. White and others are waiting in a car outside. It's a somewhat tense moment as it's clear that Mr. Orange is psyching himself up to get back into undercover mode. And what song should we hear over this but the lovely country ditty, Full for Love, from country singer Sandy Rogers, who wrote and performed it for the 1985 movie called, you guessed it, Full for Love. I don't know what it is about this song, but it always just grabbed me during this scene, especially that voice of hers. Sandy Rogers was said to have modeled her voice on that of rock legend Janis Joplin, which I can kind of hear. But anyways, good ironic contrast hearing Fool for Love while this man is preparing to deceive all these other folks. Number two, this is considered by many to be the definitive song for this movie. And why not? Because it was used so prominently for that clever trailer. And for good reason, because it has such an absurdly catchy hook. The song is, of course, Stuck in the Middle with You from the Scottish folk band Steeler's Wheel from their 1972 debut album, Steeler's Wheel. They were a relatively obscure band, which only lasted for about three years and two albums. And this song was their biggest hit by far. And it received a second life 20 years later, thanks to its prominence in this movie. Because it is featured during what, for many, is the defining scene of this movie. Halfway through, Mr. Blonde decides to torture the cop who they have held hostage. Poor Marvin, who has already been beaten up by the rest of the gang, and it's already clear that he doesn't really know anything which can help them. Regardless, because Blonde hates cops and is a sadistic thug, he takes it upon himself to cut off Marvin's ear and douse him with gasoline, all while gently dancing around to this song which he has put on the radio. And I'll say this, Michael Madsen certainly looks like he's having fun dancing around to the song, even if it's not completely in rhythm. The cop he's torturing, not so much. But yeah, looking back on this sequence, I can see why it pissed off so many folks. I think there were even some walkouts during initial screenings. But having such a hummable song overheard during this sequence certainly helped. And it's an iconic scene for that reason. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. And now my number one choice for the best needle drop for this movie. We've just gotten to meet our gang for the first time as we watch them banter around a table. This is the morning before the big heist. Joe just paid the bill and they're off. Then the screen fades to black. We hear Stephen Wright's K. Billy chime in on the radio to introduce the song. And then we hear it. The rousing Little Green Bag, which is a mid-tempo 1969 rocker from the Scandinavian pop band, The George Baker Selection. 
another pretty obscure band. We see each actor in the main cast introduced, walking in slow motion behind their name, and we know that we are in for one hell of a ride. It's an audacious way to kick off the movie, and it sets the edgy tone for everything that follows. Truly one of the best opening credit sequences. SK Billy's super sounds of the 70s weekend just keeps on trucking. category is wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Well, sort of at least. Since this was a small indie first-time film from a first-time filmmaker, Reservoir Dogs was a pretty low-budget affair. So low-budget, in fact, that apparently much of the main cast was actually wearing their own clothes during some scenes. That said, Tarantino cast himself in one key role as Mr. Brown, and, well, he's okay. He, of course, delivers the opening monologue with a plum as well. He's actually not bad in this movie. Let me tell you what Like a Virgin's about. It's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. No, it ain't. It's about a girl who's very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times, and then uh, she meets a guy who's Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, Green. Toby. They tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists. Toby. Who the fuck is Toby? Like a Virgin's not about some sensitive girl who meets a nice fella. That's what True Blue's about. No, granted, no argument about that. And I would gather that it works because of budgetary constraints. It helped to have him play one of these roles. However, in future Tarantino films, his appearances would not always work out so well. Now, Pulp Fiction, where he delivers some very questionable dialogue, which I think would have been much better coming from a real actor, a real actor of color, no less. Django Unchained, where he's using a distractingly bad Australian accent in a key scene, no less. And Death Proof, where he's just plain distracting to watch delivering some monologue, which really doesn't have any impact on the movie. Look, we're talking about one of the most purely talented new writer-directors to emerge over the past 30 years here. The talent is there, but it just wasn't there for acting. He should have given those roles to someone else. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. For me, the standout scene has always been that bravura sequence kicking off the third act, focusing mostly on Mr. Orange, played adeptly by Tim Roth, though with what seems to be his own unique attempt at an American accent at the time. And then that got to be a pain in the ass. People call me on the phone all the fucking time. I couldn't even run a fucking tape without six fucking phone calls interrupting me. Hey, when's the next time you're getting some? Motherfucker, I'm trying to watch The Lost Boys, you know? The sequence very much focuses on his lead-up to this caper as an undercover cop. We are taken through about four different narratives, including one fictional one made up inside his head. We watch him being trained by Holdaway, played by Randy Brooks, in what is often a forgotten gem of a performance in this movie. Look, man, an undercover cop's got to be Marlon Brando, right? To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell. Because if you ain't a great actor, you're a bad actor. And bad acting is bullshit this job. 
he's being taught to deliver an anecdote about a drug deal that almost went bad. Just so he can impress Joe, who is basically an underworld crime boss, putting together this team. This is their first meet. We see the rehearsal of this story, then we watch him telling it to them, and then we see a goofy but effective dramatization of that anecdote, complete with dim bulb cops and barking dogs. It would all feel too showy or even dizzying in the wrong hands, but Tarantino handles this deftly with a strong assist from his early secret weapon, the late great Sally Menke, who would serve as his editor through Inglorious Bastards. And I gotta say, since then, for Tarantino movies, she's been sorely missed. This sequence provides a brilliant demonstration of the different layers of deception that we see this character going through. Every nerve ending, all my senses, blood in my veins, everything I have is screaming, take off, man. Just bail, just get the fuck out of there. Panic hits me like a bucket of water. First there's a shock of it, bam, right in the face. I'm just standing there drenched in panic. It, of course, leads us into the increasingly bloody third act as we see both Roth and Keitel just really going for it in some melodramatic moments resulting from both characters testing the limits of their honor. And the whole movie ends with a sequence which is not only poetic in its execution, but might also serve as an effective demo reel or demonstration for folks who are advocating for gun control or nuclear disarmament. Just think about it. Larry, we have been friends. And you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart. You put that fucking gun down now. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad! This brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. As a first-time director, Tarantino played it very smart. 75% of this movie is basically a chamber piece set in one place. Stick several interesting actors, none of them movie star types, at least none of them were movie stars at the time, each of them with interesting faces, and put them in a nondescript abandoned warehouse for two hours, wind them up, and watch them go. Oh, and no matter what, do not give them firearms. Well, okay, maybe that didn't work out. Bottom line, this is his movie, and virtually every decision he makes genuinely pays off. He does creative stuff with regards to structure, but he still keeps the story relatively simple and straightforward. For delivering one of the best directorial debuts in the history of cinema, seriously, Quentin Tarantino is the MVP. What is a Reservoir Dog? Um, well, Reservoir Dog is Harvey Cattell, Tim Roth, uh, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, uh, Steve Buscemi, and me. No, uh, no um... I don't answer the question what a reservoir dog is because one, and I'm not being a jerk by not answering it because it's more of a mood thing than anything. Those guys are the reservoir dogs. Whatever the hell that is, that's them. My rating for reservoir dogs would be five stars out of five. Happy 30th anniversary to a true masterpiece, which I would rank among Tarantino's best, probably just behind Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. And if you're looking to watch Reservoir Dogs, it is currently streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another naturalistic as hell review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.